Hey, it's Christy. Welcome to Do The Work. Today and every day, we'll talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. We'll discuss what emotional work looks, sounds, and feels like in our day-to-day lives. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with your God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do the Work with Christy. I feel like I want to say, guess what? Guess who's on the podcast today? Uh, So I will. I'll say, guess who's on the podcast today? Dr. Jill Manning has agreed to come and have a conversation with me about the effects of pornography on individuals and on relationships. So welcome, Dr. Manning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad you're here. Dr. Jill Manning is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in working with individuals who've been sexually betrayed through infidelity or compulsive sexual behavior. For over two decades, her work has been featured in numerous peer-reviewed research journals, television programs, documentaries, radio shows, podcasts, and magazine articles, including the Oprah magazine. While serving as a social science fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., she was invited to testify before a U.S. Senate subcommittee about the harms of pornography on the family. Dr. Manning is a native of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and she currently lives in Colorado. If you don't follow her on social media, pause the podcast, go get on Instagram, and follow her at Dr. Jill Manning or, and go to her website at drjillmanning.com. Uh, both of those places, you can find out more about her practice and also her digital downloads that focus on betrayal, trauma, healing. Welcome, Dr. Mm-hmm. Manning, again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really a treat to, to link arms with you today, Christy, and, and support the tremendous work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I feel humbled to have you here to discuss this topic that I believe affects every household in one way or another and affects so many relationships. I've said this, I think, on every podcast so far, that relationships are what really matter the most. And, and being aware of what, being aware of what can hurt or strengthen our relationships is critical for deeper connection. So, well, we're, we'll talk about this a little later, but so often people don't want to talk about what can hurt our relationships. They don't want to face, maybe look at, uncover parts that will hurt, you know, going through the messy part of confronting, addressing, healing. Tell me about that. Do you, you're nodding your head. Tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah, because I think that avoidance of it's a dark topic. I mean, let, let's face it, it's a dark and it is an uncomfortable topic. Even though I've been speaking out and about this for over 20 years, it's still uncomfortable for me to talk about. Uh, it touches on a lot of the underbelly of the darkest parts of humanity and what's going on in our world. So I want to validate anyone out there that may be squeamish or just have that unsettled feeling in their gut that that's okay. But here's, here's the the ray of hope that I want and, and empowerment that I want to offer is the more we can 
link arms together and together face these topics and together with good resources, learn how to talk about them. We help cut through the fog of it because part, if we're avoiding the reality and pornography is avoiding reality, it's, it's in its own fantasy exactly. world, then it, then it just feeds the problem. So learning together in connection uh, with good resources, how to name it, talk about it, protect ourselves from it, and, and address it if it's going on it is really critical because it's the antithesis of what pornography does is pull us out of reality. As you were saying that, I thought, you know, obviously this is the focus. This is what you did your doctorate work on. Is that accurate? Yes. yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I my story is unique in that most of my colleagues working in betrayal trauma have been betrayed themselves. I've been betrayed, but not in this way. I came through this really through clinical work. I, I like to say that my clients brought this passion and topic to me. And so I was fresh out of master's graduate school in Canada. I started working at a high need school in private practice and also for a religious uh, community clinic. And it was through that work, Christy, that I learned, wow, this is far more pervasive than graduate school led me to believe. Um, and so through just good asking good questions, educating myself, I it blew open this whole topic. And so then years later, I had an invitation to do doctoral studies in the United States. And I came down to the States and th I knew that I wanted to focus on this because I'd seen it impact children as young as five and people all the way up into their eighties. So I knew this was something that really touched on that crossroads of some of my interests in women's mental health, uh, relationship and social justice issues, it kind of merged all of that into one. So I came through into this field academically and clinically, but that by no means means, it does not mean that I cannot relate deeply to what it feels like to be betrayed. I just have not personally been betrayed through this issue. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for hearing all of your clients and those I'm sure that are not your clients that you love and care about and doing a deeper, a deeper work, I guess, so that you can help individuals heal at a deeper level and, and recognize how they've been so affected. I remember, so I work with so many clients who are either affected by someone who um, uses porn or is the one who's using uh, pornography. And it was several years ago. I remember driving down I-15 through Nevada and through Las Vegas. And I looked up and I saw a big billboard that was meant to incite lust or lustful feelings or lustful thoughts. Clear as day, I had a thought come into my mind and it was different because normally I would be disgusted and mad. And I still feel those feelings when I see things like that. But that day I had a clear thought and impression, which was pornography or lust is not about a, a person being bad. It's about a, a person being wounded. It's about a person that doesn't know how to feel in reality, like you just suggested. So they, they use this means to distract from reality. And in the past where my thoughts were, oh, this is bad. I connected the person with the behavior. 
it became very clear to me. No. And I could get emotional quick when I talk about the people that I love with my whole soul who have been willing to, to look at and address this pull towards lust. I believe pornography is the low hanging fruit of lust. That it, it, would you say that's true? Sure, sure. And, and it certainly is a sign of brokenness and pain. Yes. So much pain and darkness in that. It, it, it's a very compact punch, if you will, to our souls. And so, yes, I, I would fully agree with that. A compact punch to our souls, to the one that is looking and to the one who loves the one who's participating in it. And the person in it. Yeah, that yes, the one who is participating. Yes. The, the, the person on the other side of the screen or the, or the person oh. displayed on the billboard. Um, you know, too often we get into a very two-dimensional discussion with this, but it's actually multi-dimensional that the people that are in this content, I, I have a great deal of concern and, and compassion and it, it's troubling. The, all sides of this, Christy, uh, those impacted through no choice or fault of their own by a loved one, consuming this, the person consuming, uh, and the people in this. I mean, it, it's dark all the way around. And, and I really feel strongly that pornography is beneath all of us. It, it, it cheapens our identity of who we really are in all respects and all directions. It's really good. Thank you for expanding that for me. That's really good. Thank you. Okay, I have some questions for you that I'd love to discuss. You speak of pornography being a highly effective teacher. So you just talked about it's it's dark, it's beneath all of us. But you also speak about it being a highly effective teacher. Will you just share more about that? What are we learning? Sure, boy, we could do a whole podcast just on this one question. So I'll, I'll do my best to be succinct and jump in if I'm I'm getting too off track. I am not one that very often will give pornography credit for much because I just see so much pain and and destruction caused by it. Um, But I will give it this, and that is that it is, it's exceptional at what it does, Christy. Uh, It's so pervasive because it's so effective. It's effective in the way it's marketed. It's effective in the way that it's produced and, and, uh, packaged and and sent out. And it really is, you know, to just step back historically, the internet turned 34 years old just this last March, a couple of months ago. And originally when the internet was designed, it was designed to be a security uh, based resource for the military and and (laughs) institutions in the event of a nuclear war or bomb, that there would be a secure means that not involving telephone wires, that we could continue some communication. Well, the pornography industry very early on, in some ways, all of us have the porn industry to thank for the internet that we have today, because they were one of the massive investors in the development of what we know as the internet today. And I, and I, I'm not an IT person. I'm not, I realize I'm oversimplifying how the internet But it is true that it started out with a good purpose in mind to protect us. And it's actually become a vehicle through which I believe this this weapon of mass destruction is disseminated called pornography. 
And why I call it an effective teacher is it, it packs so much meaning into milliseconds of its content. You have, instead of still images, the pornography of yesteryear, if you will, it has video content. It has sound. You can choose any behavior type of uh, sexual act that you're wanting to consume. So it puts the person in a high degree of control and engagement with what they are viewing. So you have consumer engagement, you have a high degree of control, it rapidly affects the human brain in three-tenths of a second, three-tenths of a second. That's faster than an NBA basketball tip-off. It's a chain reaction, chemical chain reaction in the body. And what that chain reaction does is it starts literally bonding the human brain to that content. You start pairing the oxytocin, uh, all of those feel-good hormones and neurochemicals with content that's actually quite toxic and traumatic for the human brain. So you start a, a bonding attachment process rapidly. You start an arousal process rapidly. And humans learn best. We retain content and we learn information best in a heightened state of arousal. Marketers have known this for decades. If you can get people feeling hungry, you know, if you can see the burger on the TV ad that's juicy and the lettuce is all fresh and crisp, people will literally start to salivate and they'll start craving whatever it is that they're seeing, right? So having anything that spikes an emotional response puts people in a state of mind where they're more likely to remember that response. We also... We recall information better when it's when we see people or something being rewarded. Uh, again, we pair that as being a good thing. So when we're watching porno- pornographic content and we're seeing people experience what what looks like pleasure, okay, the brain starts saying, "Ah, oh, okay, this is a good thing. This is something I want to seek after." You're evoking a very strong emotional response. And it's not just one emotion. Sometimes it can be shame, lust, anger, sexual arousal, all combined into just a surge, a a hyper-emotional response, if you will. So you put all of those things together and add that to the seemingly anonymity of the internet. We also know that humans tend to lean in more antisocial directions when when they have the illusion of no one's able to see or know what's going on, there's a, an illusion. There's no privacy online. If you think that what you're doing online is not seen by anybody, you're wrong. So, But when we have the perception, especially for young people, when they think that what they're doing and looking at cannot be traced or cannot be known by anyone, that in and of itself, Christy, lends itself to really being captured by the human brain, and it will lend itself to more antisocial behavior. You know, we all know that people will say and do things online or in a text thread or social media that they would not dare say in an auditorium filled with people, right? So, so true. So you put all of that combined, the, the nature of the human brain, the, the nature of the internet, and it's really a perfect storm. You put those two things together and it has a gravitational pull. Now, I don't say that to deem it to suggest that it's hopeless or there's no no way that we can protect ourselves from this or protect our families because I passionately believe that we can. 
but I want people to understand that pornography is successful because it's so good at what it does. It really imparts very quickly the very kinds of messages and scripts that undermine healthy relationships. And I know we'll talk about that more later, but when we think of what it's teaching, it is not teaching people how to be more empathetic. It's teaching them how to be more narcissistic. It's not teaching them how to have healthy human relationships in real life. It's pulling them into fantasy and a more violent, abusive world. So when we think, you know, whatever we practice grows stronger. When we think of what does pornography help people practice? And what is it, what are our youth? And we know from research, multiple studies actually, that pornography currently in the world is the number one sexual, I call it miseducator of our youth. And I think we have to look long and hard at what are, what are our youth learning through pornography? Uh, I'm not able to identify anything healthy that it is teaching that actually improves health or wellness or the success of relationships. So I, I hope that answers the question. It, it does many things very effectively, rapidly, and it really instills and installs programming that is the antithesis of the programming needed for healthy, satisfying relationships. Oh, I want to clap right now. That is so insightful. The reason I want to clap is because, well, we, we, I put it out there that you and I would be talking and said, do you, what questions do you have for Dr. Manning? And one of the questions that came in was, is pornography really that bad? I feel like religion is what makes it the most shameful. And what you just shared had nothing to do with religion, nothing. And everything to do with the human soul, the and human relationship and mind. So yes. So and can I speak to the religious yes, in, into that question? Because I do want to acknowledge something important. Okay. Now I'm going to speak somewhat out of my own hypothesis and theory, but then also get back to the data and the research because this is a point that often confuses people. There is information and data and research out there that shows or suggests, I should say, that religious individuals have more moral incongruence and struggle with pornography. There are also studies that say, no, uh, that's not the case. So there, there's confusing data, and I can understand why people are confused. I want to put this theory, this is life according to Jill, okay? but I've been in this space and, and field for, for over two decades. It is not an accident, I believe, that some of the most vocal anti-pornography researchers, scholars, activists, etc., are people of faith. Not all of them, but many of the leaders in this field are people of faith. Guess who knows that? The pornographer yeah, knows that. Mm. So mm -hmm. A really effective strategy to try to knock out and discredit some of that work is to go after religion as the problem. What a great distraction and shiny object. If we make religion the problem rather than the content in pornography, what a great strategy. And sadly, Christy, I see that strategy working where people will say, oh, well, maybe I just need to leave my faith community so I don't have to feel guilty about this. My religion's the problem. There will always be a tension between 
bodies of thought and belief systems that view the body as sacred and things like pornography that view pornography view the body rather as a toy and as an object to consume. Those two are not going to merge. You're always going to have tension and opposites in that. And so people need to choose what are their personal beliefs and stance and views regarding what the body is, because that's really at the crux of this. What pornography does is it plays the body and manipulates the body for arousal purposes. And so if people aren't clear on who am I, why do I have a body? What's the purpose of the body? What are healthy boundaries between my body and others' bodies? How do I teach those things to my children or not? Then pornography is going to be a real um, vulnerability. And people won't be clear on why there's such a tension between religion and pornography if they're not clear on that. So I, I want to highlight that, that yes, there is mixed data, but there's also data, even recent data that we'll reference later, that shows very clearly that regardless of level of religiosity or no religiosity, pornography is problematic for humans. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the question. I thought that was a, a, a good question that, like you said, is in a lot of people's minds. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I could go 39 different places with every comment that you make. It's so full of good information. But I'm going to ask a next question. There are many, many individuals who are in, in relationships where one of the partners is looking at pornography. They want to avoid talking about it or are afraid to talk about it. Why is it important to address this topic head on in their relationships? How does it affect the individual? the spouse, and the family. You've already shared much of that. Is there more you'd like to add to that? So if it's okay, let, let's um, slice that a little thinner because there's a lot packed into that. Okay. Okay. So first, why do I think it's important to talk about this? Well, we know that the majority of pornography use occurs in the background in secret, and it's not something that just stays the same. I've never encountered pornography consumption that has stayed the same long-term. It morphs and changes. Even the content in the industry, some of the, the leaders of the industry will acknowledge that this content becomes more coarse, more violent, more novel. It, it, it's always morphing. It's not just one thing that stays the same over time. And therefore, the way it impacts people is not the same over time. So if we're ignoring this and we may have a hunch or a gut sense of like, I think he or she may be looking at pornography and we're not out of fear, which makes sense, right? Well, whatever the answer is, what do I do with that? Right. So often people just out of avoidance or fear or shame or discomfort, maybe they have their own sexual uh, stuck points or or wounds, don't know how to talk about it. Or maybe they have talked about it and they've been lied to. So they're like, well, what's the point of bringing this up? He or she is just going to lie to me. And I say he or she because we know, you know, there are more males that consume pornography than females, but we have roughly multiple studies showing that roughly 30% of the adult female population consume pornography. And when we look at levels of compulsivity, it's roughly 10% of males, adult males in the U.S. This is according to recent research in the journal, the American uh, Medical Journal 
JAMA, but about 7% females have compulsivity with this. And I want to be clear, this does not have to reach the threshold of addiction or compulsivity to be problematic. And we can talk about that further too. But, you know, I think going back to the question, why do we need to bring this up? Because if we don't bring it up, this morphs and grows in the background and it can escalate. We know that this escalates over time. So people need to decide if I don't bring this up now, what's the cost and risk of that? I'm going to lose ground. There's ground we're going to lose if we delay this. If I bring this up next year, it's a bigger beast that I'm dealing with than if I bring it up now. And it's completely fair and okay to say, I need help or support in learning how to bring this up. I do that often in my work. It's okay to ask for help to say, I'm stuck. I don't know how to talk about this. Or in a dating relationship to ask for help. I don't know how to bring this up. I really, really like this guy. I'm scared that I'll lose him if I bring this up please don't wait. I, I, I would plead with you, if you need help, get help, but but do bring it up because it, it, it will morph. It does. I've never seen this just fizzle out and deteriorate over time. Often the narrative, which is almost predictable, is that this will grow and intensify and escalate over time. Okay. The second part of your question was, if I understood, Christy, was about the impact. Yeah. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the quickest way for me to summarize this is this. When we look at the data and the research, and there's decades of it, when we look at what goes into healthy, satisfying, and long-lasting relationships, and we look, there's, there's approximately 15 characteristics of what makes a healthy relationship in the data, right? When we look at the decades of research about what are the effects of pornography use on relationships, side by side, they're opposite to one another. All of the things that pornography does is not conducive to what we know creates long-lasting, satisfying, happy relationships. That's the shortest way of putting it. There, We could go in. There, there are well over two dozen effects of what pornography does. But we, sorry. I actually would love to, I, I would love to talk if you would share what uh, maybe a comparison, a comparison of what a stable, healthy marriage or relationship looks like and one that has been affected by pornography. Sure. So we know, again, we're, I'm going to just choose some. This is not a comprehensive list, but in a healthy relationship that's long lasting and satisfying, there's trust, right? People At trust. The core. Yeah. That they're, they're safe. They feel like what this person is showing and saying lines up with who they really are. There's integrity. There's respect. There's a sense of permanence about the relationship, right? We know, hey, we're in this together and and we're in this long haul. This isn't just a fluid, well, maybe we won't be together tomorrow. For healthy, long-lasting relationships, there's a sense of permanence. There's also a mutual belief in relationship, right? Both people have to believe, hey, we're in a relationship for a reason and we believe in that reason. We're going to protect that reason. 
We're going to invest in that relationship. Also fidelity, right? Fidelity in, in body, mind, heart. Uh, that is a core element as a marriage and family therapist that when people feel they have that, what a treasure that is to feel like people are honoring and they're one another's person. What, what, a, what a gift that is. So those are some of what we know goes into healthy relationships. And we can take each one of those line by line and we can show you data that shows how pornography eats away at or jeopardizes and compromises each one of those. For example, permanence of relationship. We know that pornography use, and it does not have to be addictive or compulsive to foster a dramatic increase in the risk of separation and divorce. And there's some data showing up to 200% more risk of, of separation and divorce. We know that people who consume pornography, this is interesting, they're less trusting of their partner, even if that partner is not looking at pornography. Interesting. Right? So even the consumer has less trust in their partner and relationship. And the person who feels betrayed by that, and we know from the research that most people do feel betrayed by pornography use, that that is an emotional and sexual betrayal. So... I hope I've answered that, Christy. There, there's so many, literally talk for hours about this, but um, but that gives you a glimpse that you just line up the qualities and they're the antithesis of one another. And this is why some of the listeners may be familiar with Julie and John Gottman, famous you know, doctors from the Gottman Institute. In 2016, they, they had held off somewhat, and I hope I'm not misre- misrepresenting them because um, I have such high respect for them both and what they've done. But they, from my perception, held off somewhat for a number of years, really coming out and making a firm, clear stance about pornography. And in 2016, they came out and they wrote an open letter to pornography. It's posted online. You can look this up. And they said definitively, the data shows and we've finally come to the conclusion that this is harmful to relationships and we do not believe that pornography is conducive to healthy, meaningful relationships. And I'm paraphrasing. Right. Up online. But, you know, for world leaders in relationship health, who've probably done more research of that quality than any other group to come out and say, our position is that pornography is the antithesis of healthy relationships. And this does not bode well for people that are wanting healthy, satisfying relationships, I think really says something. It really does. Right? Yes. Wow. I I didn't know about that letter. And I am I am a fan of theirs as well. That just the way that they speak clearly and honestly to what can create a healthy relationship, long lasting. Our brains were wired for connection. And so we, we want to be able to trust and live in relationships for a long time. And so I, I so appreciate those who will speak up and clearly, and especially they have a, they have a loud voice in this topic of relationships. So thank you for sharing that. We'll put the link to that letter in the show notes for the podcast. So that others can find that as well. Uh, We could talk all, I want to invite you to Utah for the weekend and just to chat with you (laughs) about so many things. Oh my word. There's so much goodness here. And you know, one thing I, I have seen and experienced in my own life and relationships and as I've helped other people in their relationships 
you may not know that someone is lusting or looking at porn or has an addiction of some type, some kind, but you do know something's off. You know that you're not feeling deep connection. You know that, you know, the dots don't connect all the time with what's going on in you, you know, the reality of life and what the person across from you is saying or not saying. You know that you, it's possible you want a deeper connection, but it's as you reach across to say, Hey, they're not available. It's almost like they can't reach the other way. Does that, does that ring true with your research? Yes, I, I have, well, let let me read something if I can. This is a definition or the meaning of what pornography represents. And this is, it, it, it's wordy, but it really packs what I believe pornography is. And it speaks to what you're talking about. So through all these years of working and researching in this space, Christy, this is what I believe pornography is. I believe it is a mood altering, belief changing, relationship damaging, sexually hampering, potentially addictive, socially harmful, spiritually deadening, and exploitive practice that I do not believe can be engaged in responsibly or without risk to oneself or to others. I am not aware of anything that pornography does or can do that humans in healthy relationships can't achieve better, deeper, richer, um, and in healthier ways. We don't need pornography. You know, I, I think it's become so pervasive in our culture. It's treated like it's just a given, like people need this or just want this for healthy reasons. It's not. I I see it as a a toxin. It's a toxin, environmental toxin that is polluting uh, certainly how our youth are understanding their sexuality. And for adults too, I, I don't know of any group of people with which this does good things for. And I, for context, I have interviewed people that work in the pornography industry I have met people that have come out of that industry and talked with them. I work with many people. I work on the outskirts of Boulder, Colorado. This is a very kind of liberal uh, community. And I work with people in open marriages. I work with atheists, Orthodox Jews, the whole gamut, (laughs) really such a wide gamut. And I've practiced in more than one country. And, and I don't, even the people, Christy, that say, oh, love porn, it's been so great for me. The data does not bear that out long term. Even when yeah. there's studies that look at the benefits of pornography, those are typically studies that are self-report. They don't include interviews with the partner of those people saying, oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah. And they're not longitudinal. If you just take one person in one point in time, if I interviewed a 17 year old that's looking at this every day, hey, do you think this is doing good things for you? They're likely going to say yes. Does that mean it's going to do good things for them well into their 20s, 30s when they're in relationship formation? No. No. So even people, and I have clients who are, are now betrayed by this, 
because they thought, hey, we were doing this mutually. This was all above board. We, I thought we had this open, modern, evolved relationship. Look how cool and evolved we are. We, we could handle our porn. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But over the years, this, this diverges. And usually one or both get off track and there's secrets and things that start breeding. So even, Christy, with those that think this is the cat's meow. Yeah. I don't believe that narrative long-term and over the course of relationships. And when I was doing my doctoral work, my doctoral chair was doing a geriatric study. And one of my jobs was to interview couples, elderly couples. These were couples in their 70s, 80s, 90s even. Not once. I've yet to meet a couple that have got, that have been married 30, 40, 50 years that have identified pornography as one of the characteristics of success of their relationship. And I, I want to say to listeners, pornography is internet porn, which is the main form of porn we're discussing here. This is going to do good things in our society. It's been around for 30 plus years. It would have done, it, we would have been reaping the fruits of that already. And look at what we're reaping. This is an experiment gone horribly wrong. I'm not meeting people when I travel the country and speak and as I said, all different faiths or no faith, political spectrum, on and on. I'm not meeting people that say, if it wasn't for porn, we would not have the close loving bond that we have today. That's not the narrative. Oh, oh I'm clapping again. I want, I'm clapping. This is so insightful. It's so helpful. Received another question of what if my wife or husband isn't a sexually wanting to be as sexually active as I do. Isn't porn okay then? Is it, how do I relieve myself? How do I take care of myself if my spouse or partner is not on board with as much sexual activity as I would like? Boy, that, that's a whole, whole other whole other topic. And I, and I, I can validate the question because I know this is a struggle for many, many yep. couples. You know, I think in our quick fix, almost color by number uh, culture, some of the lies pornography tells seep in to the point where we don't even question them anymore. The, an analogy I'm going to use is if a person's thirsty, right? Let's say I'm really thirsty. Yeah. I, need, I need, need hydration. Yes. And the only thing available is arsenic. I would not justify drinking arsenic because I'm thirsty. I would be wanting to seek out a healthy source of hydration and figure out why am I this thirsty? How have I gotten to the point that I'm this thirsty? Where's the disconnect or breakdown in my health wellness schedule routine that I've reached a point of thirst? Like, let's say it's happening on a regular basis. I'm not thirsty, that I feel so parched. Under no circumstances would a person, we think that would be insane yep. if someone says, oh yeah, drink arsenic. It's available. It's you know cheap to get, you know, yeah. do it, do it. Right here. Yeah. yeah. Right here. And a loving partner would say, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, maybe there's a water pipe leak. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. You know, help yourself to the arsenic in the meantime. I, I can't help you get water right now. Drink the arsenic. A loving partner wouldn't do that. So I... I want to kind of shake up the very foundation of that question and challenge some of the assumptions in that question. Yeah. 
that I would want couples to be looking at organically. How have we gotten to this point? So why why are we at a point where we are on such different pages in how we are loving one another? And, you know, this may just be me, Christy, but I think there's so much talk about sexuality that we forget the larger message about how do we love one another? Right. How I don't think pornography being introduced into a relationship is a loving act. Um, I think it's the equivalent of introducing arsenic. So for both people, if someone's saying, oh, sure, use pornography, less pressure, you know, get off my case. I'd want that individual to really slow down and think that through. How have we gotten there? And for the person that's thinking, oh, yeah, he or she's not sexually available for me. I'm saying sexually available. Right. Yeah, I th- that justifies my use of porn. I have a right and need. I have sexual needs. Okay? That whole narrative, I think, is important to deconstruct. Thank so you. I know in some ways I'm not answering the question, but I, I hope these are helpful reflections to get people thinking of, okay, what else is going on here? And what are healthy ways that don't undermine what we're trying to accomplish here? If we're really in the business of loving, connected relationship, pornography is not in that equation. Yeah. Thank you for that. I actually hear that question a lot and talk about that a lot with uh, clients and those that matter to me. I am a, if we just look around, we live in a world that uses sex to sell cars and hamburgers and you know, hotels and all kind. There's a, there are so many reasons, I believe, why I may be thirsty, why I'm just parched. And generally, I think our human eye looks at the person across from us to say, can you, I need a drink. You're responsible for this. But in reality, I'm responsible for myself to make sure that you know, to look at why I loved your question. Why am I so thirsty? How did I get to this place? Well, and, and am I thirsty? Do I have healthy thirst? Or have I been impacted by my culture around me that I believe is sexually broken and hypersexual and exactly. so lust filled? It's not a loving based culture. This is a very lust filled culture. So yes. is the thirst level a healthy level of thirst? Or am I desiring something that's really out of scope? And and sexuality has become inflamed in my life where I'm, you know, what are other ways of connecting or showing love and expressing love? There's so much emphasis placed on this one area of life. And Pornography inflames that. Pornography, one of their messages is that, you know, you're going to die if you're not sexual. I don't see any news reports of people dying because they, they have, they're not sexual. I do see people, and we have research to show the quality of our relationships impacts our health. We do have people dying because they're disconnected and they're not in healthy bonds. We have so, relationships yeah, that are dying. So the the whole discussion of what is a loving relationship, what is a balanced 
view of some of these desires and is our thirst for that, you know, what, where, what's influencing that and, and the degree of feeling parched and are, are you hearing, am I making sense? Uh, so much sense, so much sense. And if it's not making sense to our listeners, ask someone like ask for help. Can you work across state lines? How could someone receive help from you? That's living. Sure. We have people listening from all over. How could they receive help? Great question. So for ethical, my practice is typically full. Is so I, I want people to hear that. Secondly, for ethical reasons and to really maintain high quality care, I only work within my state of licensure, which is Colorado. That includes my, I am board certified in telehealth, but even with telehealth, again, for ethics and really high quality care, I I know some do it. I, I'm not in a place where I feel that that engenders the quality of care that I want to give outside of state lines. There's all sorts of safety and ethical issues that go with that. So I do provide remote care for those that live within and reside in Colorado. So for anyone living outside of Colorado, there's a couple of options. One, I do offer one and two day intensives. So I do have people that will fly in from out of state and meet with me in person one-on-one. And we go through a very personalized two-day you know, what do they need to address some of these things and and heal? And we come up with a plan and they leave loaded with lots of resources. So that is available. Second, I, I also, Christy, shared concern of there's not enough betrayal trauma specialists or people with this knowledge set available compared to the need. So uh, about three years ago, four almost now, I started a digital download platform. So it's just on my website and people can download digital downloads that give very specialized betrayal trauma skills and worksheets that they can access anywhere in the world. So let's say they have a therapist they really love who's not specialized in this. They could download or that therapist could download some of these specialized resources and incorporate that into the care they already have because we do need to get creative in how we expand access to some of these resources. That's really, that's really helpful. Thank you. So they could go to drdrjillmanning.com and find all of these resources that you're referring to. Yes. So Dr. if they go my website under shop, then there's digital downloads. And I have seven or eight that are free. So people okay. can go and peruse. And I have the Betrayal Trauma First Aid Kit that's free, as well as some um, resources for families that want to protect their families and home from pornography. There's some great skills and resources there that are free. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. Last question. And this is, this is where the main focus of your work lies. It sounds like, um, is in betrayal trauma. Would you describe or explain what betrayal trauma is? And then I may have a question or two inside of that. Sure. So first, let's define trauma. So trauma is a distressing, overwhelming experience that for a number of reasons overwhelms our internal sense of being able to handle it. Sometimes it's it's simply because we may not have had enough support when facing a situation. If we'd had enough support in place, maybe we would have handled that very differently. But trauma generally is just an overwhelming, distressing experience that if left untreated or unsupported can have immediate as well as delayed uh, responses and, and shock. And it can 
lead to a range of issues if it's not resolved. Betrayal trauma has a more overlap than not with traumatic experiences. It, it's essentially when someone we are attached to or depend on for survival, think of a young child toward a parent or a, a spouse, let's say, that we feel attached to, bonded to, violates our trust in a critical way. Not just hurts our feelings. The trust bond has been violated and compromised in a deep way. And betrayal trauma has two distinguishing factors that distinguish it from fear-based traumas, like a car accident or even combat trauma. One is we're in close relationship with the perpetrator of the betrayal, which makes it a lot harder to navigate that, right? If, if I'm attacked downtown, um, heaven forbid, someone pulls a knife on me or a gun on me, the chances of me running into that person again are pretty slim because I'd right. be so scared that either that person would be charged, the police would be called, uh, hopefully right. they'd be arrested. But I, after that, I probably wouldn't go to that same spot again, or I would do so during the day and with people with me, right? right? right. The chances of doing that again would be really yeah. slim. So, but with betrayal trauma, I live with this person often. I share our mortgage, children, life. We have a sexual bond. It's harder to extricate ourselves from the betrayer. It, certainly if treatment's not in, put in place or there's not an intervention. So it becomes, that leads to the second distinguishing factor, which is there's a higher risk of reoccurrence with betrayal trauma because I'm in close relationship with the betrayer. We also know from research, Christy, that betrayal trauma is associated with more physical illness, depression, anxiety, and dissociation. So for anyone listening, betrayal trauma has been used in the research literature for at least 25, pushing 30 years. This is not a new term. This is not just a trendy pop psychology term. This is a real thing. It's a real thing. And it's a big deal. When we start messing with our primary relationships we go into what's called prime, primal distress because we work as humans, we work on the buddy system. We choose a person. And when that person that we have fair expectations going to have our back, protect us, look out for us, at least be honest with us. When yes. that person torpedoes our life and it doesn't feel random, it feels highly personalized People can really spin out if they don't get the proper care and support. People can heal from this. I want to be clear, but it's a big deal. So when people try to minimize betrayal, like, oh, her feelings have been hurt. Boy, I push hard on that. I push really hard on that. Betrayal trauma is a big deal. It evokes a tremendous amount of psychological distress, spiritual distress, social distress, and if left untreated, can really lead to significant challenges. Oh, thank you. Thank you for describing that. I want time to stop because I have so many more questions for you as you're talking about that. Just betrayal trauma, to lose the trust of the person who promised to be trustworthy to you is... I love that the word trauma is attached to that experience. We don't, like you mentioned, you know, oh, you're just sensitive or, oh, 
you know, I've heard all kinds of things. Men will be men or women, you know, that's the human nature or can you forgive or can you let go? I hear all kinds of different scenarios and different suggestions. And really, ultimately, what it is, is someone has had a very traumatic experience and they need help in healing. Would you say it's hard to heal from a traumatic experience alone? Almost almost impossible. We know when I did my doctoral research, I, I looked at and analyzed, I researched, interviewed women all over the U.S. and Canada. And what we found, Christy, was connection, connection with self, connection with higher power, connection with other people was one of the key characteristics of those that healed and thrived after a betrayal. And yet 68% of those that are betrayed will experience moderate to severe isolation. If they stay in that isolation, and that includes getting cut off and disconnected from our own mind body. I want to make that clear. This isn't just disconnection from other people. We get disconnected, the mind body connection. We get very disillusioned often spiritually. We'll pull away from God or higher power as people understand it. It, It's in all directions, that disconnection is really a recipe to stay stuck in the trauma. People will often do something that in the research we found we call shielding. They may be the social butterflies. They may be highly extroverted. And yet even they will shield and not reach out or open up about this topic because of shame or they're worried about being branded or, you know, they want the relationship to last and they're worried the the backlash on him if they open up. So they'll shield and buy themselves time of like, who can I tell? Who will understand? So that exacerbates the isolation in the short term as well. But long term, we know connecting with a safe community. And and I will say for those listening that may be going through this fresh, maybe just weeks ago, they found out they'd been betrayed. You may be wondering, who on earth can I talk to? No one will understand this. Well, I want those people to know, one, you are not alone. Two, it may take a little bit of time, maybe a long time to find the right supports for you, but they are out there. You may have to shop around. You may have to try several meetings, several therapists, clergy, whatever it may be, but your support team is out there. It just may take time to curate that in a way that works for you. You know, as you are saying that, and I've seen this in with my own clients, that you just described many of the outcomes of someone who is engaging in lust or looking at porn, isolation, fear of talking to anyone about it. I'm, there are all of these behaviors that are quite across the board when someone is uh, engaging in lust or porn. But you just described them of someone as well that's on the other side. It makes me want to cry of someone that's on the other side of it. We have such a need to be loved and seen as lovable and that, that we matter, that we're so afraid to say, hey, I have a weakness or someone I love has a weakness and it's really affected me. So your invitation for them to come out and share and find and keep looking and trust that there are people out there that will not see you, (laughs) will not see you different, but will see you as courageous and strong 
and worthy of love, of so much love and support. Thank you for, for speaking to that really clearly. Thank you, Christy. And a perspective about betrayal trauma that often gets ignored or not included. And I want to speak to this briefly. I'll be yeah, brief. It's great. Often the people struggling with pornography use have been betrayed in their past as well. And I'm not trying to flip the script and, oh, they're the victim. We need to feel so sorry for them. I'm not doing that. They need help. This is a very serious issue and it needs to stop. Betrayal trauma, it is, the research shows this. More often than not, the people consuming it that are sexually compulsive, somewhere along the line in their life, often when they were young or little, were betrayed in a key relationship themselves. There's disproportionate amount of sexual abuse and molestation represented in the compulsively sexual population. Um, A parent may really drop the ball and did not come through to teach them about what healthy sexuality means, or they experienced a trauma like a, a messy divorce or parental conflict that affected them. And they turned to pornography, I'm not excusing this, as a way to regulate emotions that they didn't learn how to regulate in mature ways. So I, I mention this because often there's a misconception about my work or even me as a person that I'm a man hater. Men are all pigs. I love men. I have some really noble, virtuous, top-notch men in my life that I, I'm deeply grateful for. And I have compassion for those struggling. That doesn't mean they don't need to be accountable and take responsibility for damage and harm they've done. Not, none of us are excused from taking accountability. But it's this betrayal trauma issue, as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's multidimensional. The people in the pornography, the stats show almost all of them have dealt with betrayal trauma of some kind, sexual trauma. I think it's a high 90s percentages. So this is a topic that applies broadly of how do we heal our wounds that drive us in unhealthy directions. Oh, will you please come back another time so we can talk about that and talk about what's the, what does the, what's the difference between sober being sober and, and being in recovery? What, what does that look like? Sound like feel like there's so much more Dr. Manning. I'm going to call you Dr. Manning because you I, just your vast knowledge and all the, the work that you have done around this. I want to be so respectful to that, but I want to call you Jill as well as my friend for Absolutely. just the feeling I have felt in this conversation. This is an issue. Like I, we spoke at the beginning that, that affects every family, whether you know it or not. And if you don't think it's affecting your family, You're not having deep conversations with the people that you love the most. You mentioned, Dr. Manning, you said, you know, people will say you're a man hater and, you know, you're just out to get men. As you said that, I thought love is actually speaking to the very thing that is affecting the man or the woman or their relationship together. That is actually what love looks and sounds like. Not That is not hate. That is love to speak clearly. Brene Brown says clear is kind. And yes. 
Dr. Manning, you have been clear today. At the end of every podcast, I ask, what work? How can our listeners do the work this week? What would you suggest? Mm. I think for those out there listening who are struggling, that are in the grips of pornography and may not know how to get out, I'd want them to know there is hope and excellent help available and, and to start that path as soon as possible. That the quicker you start it, the less damage you're going to have to unpack. And, and there's hope. There is hope even for those people that feel like they're in the darkest pit and there's no hope for them. There's hope for them. For those that are impacted, find find your team, find your tribe of people that you can start connecting with. And I don't say that lightly or flippantly. I know from firsthand experience that that uh, takes time. There's going to be often loss. A loss is part of betrayal. That can include realizing, hey, a person that I thought's my person, uh, maybe a close friend or a family member that I thought I could turn to when things really hit the ropes, isn't my person for this topic. So for those that are isolated and thinking, where do I start with this? Start where you can start. You know, it may be through a trusted friend that you know has been through this or, or even social media, start searching betrayal trauma. There's so many brilliant resources. That's how you and I, Christy. That's true. Right. That's how you that. So just in small ways, expand your circle and, and please take excellent care of yourself. Betrayal trauma really does a number. It's overwhelming. And so in small and big ways, take care of yourself. Um, And I I love to leave with the stat that 80% of people that go through a traumatic experience will grow. And I don't say that like, oh, hey, be happy about this. No, this is devastating. But I want I share that in a spirit of hope that people do get through this and they can thrive and heal. This is something that can be healed. And lastly, I'd say a piece of work that I feel passionate about as a mother and as a clinician, we must protect our youth. We must protect our homes. And you can start today. If that means changing the Google settings on Google, that's free to do. Look up on YouTube. How do I change my Google settings to, you know, even start there or install a filter, have a conversation about what it means to really love people. How do I show respect for my body and the bodies of others? Have those conversations. And when parents say, oh, I'm, that's so awkward. I feel uncomfortable with that. I want us to get very clear on where that discomfort sits. Are we more comfortable with the porn industry getting to our kids first or wading through it? And yeah, maybe there's flush cheeks. Maybe there's some awkwardness. Maybe we don't say it perfectly. So what? So what? You will not regret having those conversations. And the, the research shows those kinds of conversations are protective and buffers for our kids. And our kids may not like it. They may be like, oh, that's so gross. Don't talk to me about that. Deep down, they will respect it. And later on, they'll thank you for it. So that's it. Get help. Get connected. Protect, protect, protect. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Dr. Manning. I'm so grateful that you are here. I want to make sure everyone knows that Dr. Manning has a book out called What's the Big Deal About Pornography? 
a guide for internet gen- for the internet generation. You can find it on Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. And I will put it on my social media as well. So if you're not following Dr. Manning, follow her at uh, your Instagram is Dr. Jill Manning. Thank you. We will have many choices in our day and in our week. I hope, and I think I can speak for you, Dr. Manning. We hope that you'll choose to do the work. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience, or ask me a question, go to coachchristy.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire, and we'll be in touch with you soon. There are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.